0: 724 people asked periodically what made them happy or angry or sad or fulfilled over 85 years. The Harvard Study of Adult Development began that process in 1938. And this year, researchers looked over all their results to try to work out the necessary elements of a good life. They came up with some concrete ideas for all of us for how to live better. Dr. Mark Schultz is the Associate Director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development and co-author of a book that draws heavily on the results. It's called The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. Dr. Schultz, great to have you on Life Matters today.
1: Great to be with you.
0: Now, your Good book, morning. Good, hello. Your book relies on a lot of uh, scientific studies from around the world, but one huge source of material was this Harvard study. Tell us a little bit about why that is such a powerful study.
1: It's a very unusual study. So it started in the 1930s at an unusual time in the history of the United States. It was in the midst of the Great Depression and on the eve of World War II. And it was actually two separate studies initially. 724 individuals were studied. Two-thirds of them came from the inner city of Boston, living in the poorest neighborhoods of this northeastern city in the United States. Most of them were children of immigrants, Facing real poverty and challenges in their life. And then across town on the other side of Boston at Cambridge, in Cambridge at Harvard University, was another group, about a third of the 724 participants that were students. And they, both those groups were initially uh, studied to see what leads to human flourishing. What were the conditions under which people flourished in very different circumstances? Both of those groups, all 724, were followed very closely throughout their lifespan. So into adulthood, mid-adulthood, late life, and in fact, to the end of their life. Along the way, we started studying their spouses and we're now working with more than 1,300 of their children. So it's a very unusual study that's followed people closely across time. And it's followed a lot of people. So it's it's rich in detail and allows us to to think about these important questions about what's most important in our lives.
0: Though so as you point out in the book, it's completely not representative of uh, modern day America, even even or even America in the thirties. What ramifications has that had?
1: Yeah, so really important for all science to think about this idea about replication. No one study is perfect and there's certainly lots of um, imperfections in our study over the 85 years. One of them is its representativeness. So we always need to look to other studies and what we're interested in science are replication, a signal that's common across many studies. So in our book, The Good Life, what we did is we looked at thousands and thousands of other studies to look at whether there's a common signal that we we think is associated with a good life. Really important to make sure that we're representing all people's experiences across time, across gender, across ancestry. All of those differences are important.
0: Now, Mark, you asked uh, a, a particular set of questions over the years, or the, the rolling groups of researchers did. Mm-hmm. Have those questions changed much in in the nearly 85 years since this study's been going?
1: Yes and no. So so
0: the study at its core
1: started as a study of flourishing, which is very different than most medical and scientific studies of people. Uh, the focus wasn't on pathology or disease outcomes. We were really interested in trying to understand what it meant to, to have a good life given the circumstances that you grew up in. So that focus has continued across four generations of leaders across 85 years. But of course, the the kinds of questions and even the way we ask questions has evolved over that, that time. So there are questions that we didn't think to ask 80 years ago that are important today. And the way in which we ask questions, I think we've become more direct. And we've also asked more of our participants. Although I'll say at the very beginning of the study, these 724 participants were poked and prodded, literally. They were photographed in their in their shorts so that we can get an idea of what their bodies looked like. They took very extensive physical exams. Uh, so the participants were used to being asked very important and private questions uh, throughout the study, uh, but we we're asking about things that we never asked uh, 80 years ago. Um,
0: Yep, I love how uh, researchers continued asking one of the original questions, are you ticklish, just on the off chance that it might (laughs) come in handy one day, but they adjusted some of the other ones. We're speaking with Dr Mark Schultz, who's the Associate Director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development, which has thrown up some rich gleanings about how people live their lives and I I guess also the distinction between what people assume about happiness and a good Mm -hmm. life and what actually happens to them. And Mark, it sounds like the researchers sometimes have... To dig deeper than just those surface responses to get a handle on people's attitudes. Tell us about the anonymous participant that we will call Sterling Ainsley. <laughs>
1: Well, first I want to say that the the study has really embraced the idea of getting to know people closely and getting to know their daily experiences. So it's not a study that's always dependent just on uh, on questionnaires. Uh, We have interviews, we visit with folks, we went to the homes of all 724 participants in the very beginning. So we got to know them very closely and that's part of why I think they were able to share important and intimate aspects of their life. So Sterling Ainsley is a really interesting participant that we talk about a lot in the book. We call him our man from Montana, which is out west in the United States and uh, a place with lots of space and and beauty. Um, He grew up in a fairly privileged uh, environment, meaning his family had some resources when he was growing up, but it was quite challenging. Um, He was actually born into his sister's arms because his mom had trouble at birth and was having trouble generally. She was dealing with mental illness. And his sister was someone who was a really important, uh, played an important role in his childhood. Dad also had some uh, challenges. He was a compulsive gambler and actually abandoned the family when Sterling was young. Um, Sterling was eventually adopted in his teen years. He was adopted by another family in a very rural area in a different place in the country. Um, and um, his mom continued at that time to struggle with mental illness. His sister played a role, but less of a role when he was adopted. Um, Sterling as an adult. He served in the military during World War II. Um, he had kids, got married, had kids, moved to Montana, retired at about 60. Uh, but lived a fairly lonely existence in Montana. He lived in a trailer. His wife, who he remained married to, actually lived very far away, about 90 miles away, and they hadn't slept together in the same room when we last saw him in his 70s for about 15 years at that point. Very proud of his kids, but also not fully connected to them. So Sterling was a person who uh, both had some wonderful things in his life. Um, He was able to engage with others, had a family, but also uh, lived a life that was somewhat lonely and became um, disconnected with important people in his life, including the sister, who literally welcomed him into the world. Um, I think part of what's interesting about him is that he had a neighbor when he lived in this trailer park, who was 87 years old, and he spent his evenings typically watching TV with that neighbor. So he did have some connections in his life. The neighbor had some challenges in her own life, and uh, each night Sterling would actually help her into her bed at night, Uh, And then go back to his trailer. Uh, That was his sort of existence for his last 10 or 15 years of his life.
0: What I found fascinating about his story was that he said up front that the you know those people uh, who had been important to him over his life were the most important relationships in his life he was proud of his children as you said he loved them yep. um, and his sister but when poked a little further it became clear that yeah he had not seen them he wasn't even sure yep. if his sister was still alive and that speaks to the core of this study's uh, conclusion doesn't it Mark Schultz that, that you said you know you You can boil down the secret to uh, the lesson of this study into one line.
1: It's true, and we didn't expect that we'd be able to do this. My co-author, Bob Waldinger, and I are both scientists, and we tend to qualify statements, and we're very careful about what we intend to say. But when we looked at the hundreds of findings from this study across the, the eight decades, and we looked across thousands of other studies it became very clear to us that we could say the following. It's relationships that keep us healthier and happier throughout our life. And it's not just the most intimate relationships. It's all kinds of relationships that are important.
0: Now, let's drill down into the health uh, as well as the happiness just for a moment before we mm-hmm. go on to talk about the the quality of those relationships and the type and the nurturing. Uh, Mark, how do good relationships protect people's physical health?
1: Yeah, This was one of the most surprising things when we started. We had some research going back 25, 30 years that suggested this connection between relationships and health, but we weren't confident until we began to look at other studies again from across the world and across time. It's pretty clear to us now uh, from the science that exists, plenty of findings that relationships literally get under our skin and shape our health. How How does that happen? One of the main mechanisms is that relationships are a key in helping us buffer stress. So when we're under stress, we often rely on other people to help us navigate a path forward, to deal with our emotions, to take care of some of our physical needs if we have medical challenges. So they're really important in shaping our responses to stress. But it's also clear on the other side that the absence of relationships is quite aversive for us and it affects our, our health in quite uh, negative and quite strong ways. So it's both the presence of relationships that are protective, particularly around stress, and it's the absence of close connections, a sense that people care about us, that is aversive for our health.
0: And also our cognition, it sounds like.
1: Absolutely. So we have some research and it's consistent with other studies. Um, we look carefully at the relationship of our participants in their 80s and try to characterize the quality of that intimacy that they had with a primary uh, partner. And the quality of that relationship predicted brain health three years later for the women in the study. Um, So this was an important time in the 80s. We're all beginning to lose various aspects of our cognitive or or thinking prowess. Uh, Some of that is memory. And what we found is that those who had these uh, high quality... Uh, intimate relationships were less likely to lose over a three to five year period some of that cognitive functioning. Similar findings from other research as well. So it seems like relationships help protect our brains as well.
0: Dr. Mark Schultz is our guest, the Associate Director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development and co-author of The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. Mark, let's talk a little bit about the kinds of relationships and the quality of them because you focus on the quality in the book. Does it matter what whether they're intimate partnerships or friendships or family relationships?
1: So one of the basic ideas here is that the things that we get from relationships, the the things that relationships give us are so varied and so vast that most of us get what we need from more than one relationship. There's some people who are quite fortunate, have been in an intimate relationship for long periods of time. It's a very satisfying and enriching relationship, so they may get much of what they need from that one person. But people who are not in intimate relationships, or even most people who are, Most of us depend on multiple people in our life. It could be relatives or friends or neighbors. It's even the people in our community that we may run into on the way to work or the people who serve us our coffee in the morning. Um, It's all of those relationships combined give us the kinds of things that we need from relationships to thrive.
0: And when we talk about quality, are we talking about uh, a particular characteristic of those relationships?
1: I think for important relationships, so with a partner, with a close friend or a relative, that's an important connection for you. We're we're talking about a few things. Critical is this idea of trust that this is a person that you can rely on, particularly when you have needs. So in the middle of the night, if you're scared or you're sick, do you have people in your life that you can call or depend on for help? Um, so trust is critical, some degree of reciprocity. We don't necessarily have to give exactly the same things that we get back in relationships, but reciprocity suggests that we're giving and getting things out of relationships. Good relationships, uh, we, we have that bi-directional quality to it. Um, relationships are also the place where we have fun and we have those kinds of feelings that remind us what it means to be human. So good relationships should be full of joy as well. It's not always about joy or happiness, but they should have that element. And they're important people. And, and if you're lucky, they're important people in your lives that uh, you know when you're with them, you're going to have a good time and a good laugh. So those are some of the important qualities of relationships.
0: I was particularly struck by one sentence about the, the a high conflict marriage without affection is worse for your health than a divorce. So mm-hmm. that, that sense of quality really came to the fore. Mm-hmm. Uh, Henry and Rose's story stuck with me too, Mark, because it was about the quality of the relationship. Can you tell us a little bit about their story? Because they didn't come from money and they had a few challenges in their life, but it sounds like they illustrated a lot of the points that this book makes. They did.
1: We actually start the book talking about Henry and Rosa. They're one of my favorite couples. They're adorable and lovely. And their daughter is also a second generation participant in our study. So Henry was born poor in an area of Boston that was quite disadvantaged and poor when he grew up. Uh, lots of family issues as he was growing up. His dad had trouble with uh, alcohol. Um, when he was a young adult, he moved away from the family, which I think was good for him at that time. Um He worked in the automobile industry, so he worked in Michigan, um, had jobs that he maintained for a while but got laid off at a different point, and his family faced a number of problems including losing a child to polio uh, when that child was young. They also had a challenge uh, later on in their life, their daughter Peggy, who is the member of the family that's still part of the study, Uh, got married and she realized soon after she got married that uh, not only was it not the right person, but that she was gay and she had married a man and was still sort of coming to grips with that. This was a crisis for the family, for Peggy, but also for the parents who were quite religious. Um, But they were able to to rally and to come to support their daughter, Peggy, and to really be there for her at a critical time. So incredible family. And as uh, an older couple in their 80s, we were interested in the nature of their relationship and asked them to talk with us about their greatest fear. We tried to present a challenge to couples and to see how they navigated it. And their fear was, uh, Henry's fear was that his wife, uh, that he wouldn't die first, that he would be left without his wife, uh, who he was so um, in love with and and connected to. Um, And in fact, that happened soon after that interview. His wife died, Rosa, and uh, very challenging for him. And he, in fact, died six weeks after Rosa died. Um, but beyond the, the sort of cuteness of this couple and the amazing way that they were resilient through the years, this was a couple that was able to talk about hard things, including those kinds of fears that are hard for all of us to talk about. But with the support of each other, they were able to talk about those fears and to, to figure out, pass forward together.
0: Yeah, Yeah, it was lovely to read about their interactions, but also you point out they had really effective coping mechanisms, which hopefully will bring some comfort to people who might not have the luck to be in such a lovely relationship. Are there Mm -hmm. practical things we can do to cope if that is the case?
1: So I think the the really important conclusion, one important conclusion from looking at a study that's followed people across eight decades of their life is that stuff happens to everyone. So these participants, the college sample, they were in college at a time that World War II broke out. Ninety-one percent of them ended up serving in the military. That wasn't what they expected with their lives. They were at Harvard. They expected the world to open up to them and said they faced an incredible challenge. And If we look across all of the participants, challenges occur regularly in lives. It could be societal challenges like the pandemic, or it could be personal or, or family challenges. So I think one of the keys, Henry and Rosa show us this, is to be able to acknowledge challenge when it's there and to lean into it in a way that allows you to get the support of others. If we tend to distance ourselves from challenge or deny that the challenge really exists in our life, it's very hard to access support from others. So being able to recognize challenge, to talk about it and to allow people in, particularly important in coping with stress and overall challenge.
0: Yes, you talk a lot in the book about nurturing relationships and that that has to be a kind of repeated act of choice. Tell us a bit more about that.
1: Well, again, when we interviewed folks late in their life, in their 80s, we asked them about their regrets, their biggest regrets, and most folks talked about regrets that they had in relationships. So the most common one is that they let a relationship wither over time. They just didn't put the time and energy into it, and they lost touch with folks. Other people bemoaned the the fact that they weren't kind to important people in their life, their partners, their children, people they worked with. So the conclusion we draw from that is that we need to think about our social connections as something akin to physical fitness that we can think about it as social fitness that we need to lean in be very um, uh, proactive and intentional about our relationships and to treat it just like we treat physical fitness. We need to put the energy in and the time that's required to nurture and to cultivate those relationships. For those of us who are have become estranged from important people in our life, we may need to put energy into reconnecting and also making new relationships. Another key idea when we study these lives is that people at all ages are able to make friends and to uh, enrich their social connections. It doesn't matter what age you are, it's never too late, is one of the messages from this research.
0: Though I also love that you write, I quote, people are terrible at knowing what is good for them. <laughs> what do you mean by that? <laughs> well,
1: I, 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 I like that line too, yeah, even though I had a hand in writing it. Um, um, and part of it is that we, we call this... Affect of forecasting, affect is about our feelings that we're not very good about predicting what's going to make us happy. And one of the things we're particularly bad about is the role of being with people. So many of us at the end of a busy work week might say, you know, I'm tired. I need some time to decompress. I can't go out tonight. I'm not sure I want to be with people. But it turns out that being with people often gives us a lift that we don't fully recognize or anticipate. So that's an example of how we're bad at forecasting. There's a great study that happened in Chicago in the States in which they interviewed people before on their commutes to work. This was before they got on a train to work and they said, what are you going to do on the train? And everyone said, I'm going to zone out. I'm going to sleep. I'm going to nap. Maybe some people read. The researchers said, do you ever talk to people? And they said, no, 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 I don't do that on the train. I keep to myself. Uh, Why not? Because people wouldn't be interested in talking to me. These were psychologists, and psychologists do cruel things like randomly assign people to do something. And they said, please talk to people on the train, the randomly assigned group. They caught them at the end of the commute. And those people said that their moods had improved. Compared to folks who did what they usually do. So when we talk to strangers, even people that aren't part of our intimate network, we tend to get this energy. Uh, People will describe it when they're traveling, when they met someone who they didn't know before. They'll talk about the excitement of making a new connection. But we can do this with people that we work with that we don't know well or people in our neighborhood stopping to talk about, you know, what's important in their life or talk about that pet that they're walking on the street. Those are the kinds of connections that can enrich our experience and provide energy in our life. They also remind us we're not alone, which is really important.
0: I'm loving some of the texts that are coming through on people's choices and activities that make them feel happy and like they're leading a good life Linda says staying physically fit and very active is central to my happiness in my early 70s I regard building fitness in your middle years as superannuation for your later years impacting powerfully on one's quality of life as you age great metaphor another says the book about happiness would be really useful if also published as a children's or teens book Mm. please pass on this suggestion noted Uh, and And Kevin says, one should not focus solely on being happy. As humans, we're sometimes sad. A better focus yep. is on having a life of meaning. And you write about that too, don't you, Mark?
1: Yeah, I love that last comment from Kevin. Um, so I, I we think, Bob and I, my co-author of this book, think that the pursuit of happiness by itself it's not likely to be successful. First of all, life isn't all about just joy. Life is complicated. And part of our most important experiences in life might have other feelings other than joy. There might be sadness or tension or anger. Um, So life is really about leaning into experiences, particularly experiences with other people. And joy and happiness are a happy byproduct of being connected to others. But the risk here is when we connect with others, we also open ourselves up to the challenges of relationships, which may bring sadness and disappointment and tension. Um, So I love this idea. It shouldn't all be about the pursuit of happiness. In fact, we could argue that some of the challenges that folks are facing in modern life is that there's been in the culture a kind of obsession with uh, happiness as a key goal in life. And that may lead certain people astray.
0: Well, yes, you looked at what millennials were saying about happiness and concluded this was a really good time to be looking at this issue.
1: Yeah, so if we look at survey data, um, and, and of course it always changes, but there are large numbers of people that have an idea that happiness is to be had or to be gained by Um, being able to buy luxury goods or to solely buy success at work or by achievements. And what we know from looking at folks in our study and from lots and lots of other research is that those are things that may give us momentary uh, experiences of joy or happiness if we're lucky, Um, but that to experience a fulfilling life, what we think about as a good life, Um, meaning is important and being embedded in connections is also really important.
0: You also, there's quite a big section on work and I wish we had time to go into it in more detail, but I do want to touch on it before we finish up, Dr. Mark Schultz, because you talk about the ideal mix of work and home, which uh, surprised me a little because I felt like more people would be saying, well, I wish I had just simply worked less. Mm
1: -hmm. What, What we start with is the idea that many of us spend a lot of time at work. In fact, if we reflect on our life, many of our working hours for folks who are engaged in full-time work are spent at work. And traditionally, that was out of the home. It's changing, of course, with more remote and hybrid models of work. And to us, that suggests the importance of thinking about work as an opportunity to connect with others. So most of us, but not all of us, are lucky enough to work in settings in which we interact with others It may be clients or customers or bosses or people we supervise. And one of the keys when we look at the folks who thrive the most in our study are people who are able to experience those relationships in a way that brought them joy and connection to others. So when I talk to young people, they say things like, I'm not sure I'm ready to be a manager, to to, to manage people. It's something I can imagine doing later in life but what they're really worried about is that they won't do it well, that they'll make a mistake and they're still learning. So the trick is really learning how to engage with others in the workplaces. Again, those relationships might vary, but the people who thrive are those who are able to take advantage of that. So I teach, that's my main role in life besides doing research. And over the years I've become better and better and it's brought me more and more joy. And not just connecting with students in the classroom directly, but in that time before class and after class, and when they come to visit me in my office, and really being interested in what their experience is like. And that's enriched my life in important ways. And I'm grateful that I have work that allows me to do that.
0: Mark, you point out in the book that a lot of what we learn from this research are things that philosophy and religion have been telling us over and over again for millennia. Why have Mm -hmm. we not listened (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, I think it's it's important also to say that there are ideas that have um, not stood the test of time, right? So if we look at, at, at history and religious ideas, some of them are right on point with the latest scientific findings. And I think that's really exciting. So the importance of relationships and community really important. I think the question you're asking about why we're not listening to that message is a, a critical one. And part of it is that there are other messages. So there's uh, you know, tremendous amount of messages on traditional media and social media that tell us, that getting new things are going to make us happy. That's what advertising is about. That's much of what social media is about. The latest thing that you've done that might be impressive to other people. So we often go on to social media and we end up comparing ourselves to others in a way that leaves us feeling less than others and desiring some of what we imagine others might have that we don't. So I think there are competing messages out there, and that's partly why we're not listening to things that many of us know in our heart might be important for us, like being connected to others and our community.
0: I will leave you with this text that says Warren Buffett, one of the world's richest men, says that the truest measure of success is whether or not the people who are supposed to love you actually love you. Family is the most important thing, says our correspondent, in all of our lives and true friends run a close second. And that is certainly supported by the research reported in Dr. Mark Schultz's book, which he co-authored. Uh, it's called The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. Mark, so great to chat with you today. Thank Thank you so much for your time.
1: Oh, it's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed talking with you, Hilary.
0: It's mutual. Thank you. Dr. Mark Schultz, the Associate Director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development. Really long study, 85 years going about what makes people happy, not just what they think makes them happy. Uh, A couple of other texts too. I think it's music. Uh, that keeps us healthy, says one. Joy, community, movement, rhythm, it's all there. And another, happiness can come in small things like mending something that's broken, appreciating the vast beauty of nature and human-made beauty in architecture, music or art. But often great happiness comes from doing good for others. Knowing none of us always feel happy is also important. Very true.
1: Find more great ABC RN stories that take you
0: beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.